The Levitical or Aaronic priesthood was the authority offered to and utilized by the Jews for generations. During Christ's ministry, not only did he call for a higher thought and action, but he implemented a higher authority. The power to act in Christ's name allows us to participate in sacred ordinances in his name and to thereby become first-hand witnesses of the miraculous good brought about in his name. I invite you to join us in our study today and encourage each of us to request divine understanding that the Spirit may teach us individually and specifically. Welcome to Come Follow Up. I feel like I've been a recipient of the priesthood in a lot of ways. One that I can remember was when I was in college, my dad gave me a priesthood blessing for that semester that everything would go well. But he said that this semester you're going to know uh, for a reality that Jesus Christ is real and he loves you. And I didn't think about it until you know months later when I'm having a really stressful week and I didn't think I could survive as it goes when you're in college, but then there was this tender mercy that happened where someone literally knocked on my door and offered me a job, which I was needing at the time. And I remember as soon as the door closed and that was over, that thought came into my mind that this semester you will know that Jesus Christ is real and he loves you. And that for me was such a tender mercy and blessing that I knew for real that Jesus Christ loved me because of that priest blessing. When my son passed away, I needed <laughs> a priesthood blessing to accept it. And through that blessing, I was able to have peace and to know that it was my path and my son's path and that everything was going to be okay. Welcome everybody, my name is Ben Lomu and I'm your host. Our gospel scholar for today is Dr. Melissa Inouye. Melissa is a historian with the Church History Department for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. She's been involved with writing the Global Histories Project that can be found in the Gospel Library. Melissa, welcome. Thanks so much. Great to be here again. And seated next to Melissa is our special guest, Jasmine Jimenez-Rapley. Jasmine has a degree from BYU in Ancient Near Eastern Studies, has presented at many gospel-related conferences, and has researched the Latter-day Saint Temple Liturgy. She and her husband, Neil, live in Spanish Fork, Utah. Jasmine, we're real excited to get to know you today. Happy to be here. And we're also joined by our studio audience. We look forward to hearing from you as well. Thanks for being here. And to the viewers at home, welcome, and thank you for joining us. Throughout this discussion, we'll invite you to share your experiences with us on Facebook and Instagram. Come Follow Up is available as a television show and a podcast for study and teaching. Visit byutv.org slash comefollowup for more. Today, we've selected two topics to discuss that relate to the passages found in Hebrews chapters 7 through 13. These topics and discussions support and build upon the Come Follow Me resources. The two topics we are going to discuss today are the Melchizedek Priesthood Guides Me to Christ and Ancient and Modern Ordinances Point to Jesus Christ. We'll explore these topics here with our panel and studio audience. Then later, we'll move on to footnotes, where we will dive in a little bit deeper into these materials with just Melissa and Jasmine. So the first topic we're going to be discussing today is the Melchizedek Priesthood Guides Me to Christ. Would you mind kind of giving us a little bit of historical context as to what this topic, how it fits in with these specific chapters in Hebrews? So um, from Hebrews chapter 7 through 13, it's quite dense. So it reads, it comes across kind of legalistically and like all of these kind of citations of Old Testament 
practices, right? So the kind of broader context for this is, um, as you know, in the early church, it began as a community of Jewish people who were following a popular rabbi, Jesus. As the church expanded, it became a kind of mixed Jewish-Gentile community. And here we have a, um, a sermon to people who were Jewish who were kind of experiencing a lot of persecution. And the person writing the sermon is really concerned that they will leave their faith in Christ. So we see here the sermon trying to kind of carefully argue based on the scriptures, um, like the Old Testament, the prophets, the Torah, using those scriptures to kind of make the case that Christ is at the center of all of this. It, all, it points to him um, and he is eternal and his, the covenant with him will never die. So that's the kind of overall trajectory I see. And in addition to the persecution they're experiencing, they're also in some ways, this epistle is trying to navigate the relationship between Judaism and Christianity. Are we Jewish? Are we a sect of it? Are we an outgrowth of it? Are we something entirely different? And this epistle in some way seeks to answer that question um, using Old Testament scriptures, appealing to the Jewish scriptures in order to make an argument that Jesus Christ is superior, he's greater, and what that means for our worship of Christ. And it all comes down to uh, the temple in some ways. And this epistle argues that Christ is the new temple. He is the new way, and they're developing this new theology and doctrine around temples, priesthood, and this is our way forward. I love what's been said about Christ is the way, and, and he's trying to show uh, a better way through Jesus Christ. And I think if we're not careful, as we talk about priesthood, we could get into this discussion of lesser priesthood, higher priesthood, when ultimately we're talking about Jesus Christ as that high priest who provides us that better way forward. Do you mind talking to us a little bit about that, Melissa? Sure, well, let's look at Hebrews chapter seven. Um, this, in the first part of Hebrews chapter seven, the author of Hebrews tries really hard to make a connection between the scriptures talking about Melchizedek, that's in um, the book of Genesis, to a Psalm, uh, Psalm 110, verse four. Going back to these kind of foundational scriptures. Chapter seven, verse one. This King Melchizedek of Salem, priest of the most high God, met Abraham as he was returning from defeating the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned one-tenth of everything, a tithe. So there's this kind of discussion of Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek means righteous king. And the interesting thing is Melchizedek is the priest king of the place that will one day be Jerusalem. This is before, you know, it's like a Jewish city, right? This is when Abraham is passing through the land of Canaan. So the point is that Melchizedek is this ancient priest king in the place that is now Jerusalem. And you can see the author trying to make these distinctions, saying Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. Therefore, someone you pay tithes to, someone who blesses you, is like in a higher position than you. And Jesus is in this higher position because Jesus is... The, the righteous priest. And you see that if you go to your Old Testaments, um, and, and we should, because this is exactly what the author of Hebrews is doing. Um, if you look at Psalm 110, verse four, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So here the author of Hebrews is saying, the person um, being spoken about in Psalm 110, verse four, is indeed Jesus Christ. And that's how Christ's authority comes. And that's why Christ's power um, and covenantal kind of efficacy is superior to 
that of the covenant that you have been raised in. The author of Hebrews is trying to make this argument that you can like put your money on Christ because the ancient scriptures prophesy of him and he is the fulfillment of this law. And, and then basically that's like the rest of, from chapter seven through 10, it makes these numerous comparisons between um, the symbols, the rites, the sacrifices of the Old Testament and um, the symbols, the rites, the sacrifices that come through Christ. And I actually made a list of 19 things, um, which so just showing how kind of carefully the author of Hebrews was kind of going back and forth through these scriptures that the people he was talking to knew well. And part of the reason why he's appealing to Melchizedek specifically is because he's trying to argue that Jesus Christ is the great high priest. And one of the counter arguments would be, well, Jesus Christ was not of the tribe of Levi. Jesus Christ was born of the tribe of Judah. And they point out in the epistle to the Hebrews that, um, that traditionally priesthood comes only through the tribe of Levi. The sons of Aaron mm -hmm. were priests under the law of Moses. So how on earth could Jesus be the great high priest? And so he appeals to the authority of Melchizedek. Well, Melchizedek wasn't of the tribe of Levi. The Levites didn't even exist back in Melchizedek's day. Therefore, Melchizedek is, uh, supersedes them. Melchizedek is a predecessor to this order of priesthood, which means he's a different kind of priesthood. And because Psalm 110 mentions that there will be another priest after the order of Melchizedek, well, maybe that's Jesus. And it's starting to sound a lot like Jesus because Jesus is also a king of righteousness as what Melchizedek means. He also is a prince of peace since Melchizedek was the king of Salem, which also means peace in Hebrew. So he's trying to make this argument based on this idea of We've got lineage priesthood, but then there's this other kind of priestly order. There's something that Melchizedek had, and we think Jesus had it too, and he has it even greater. He is the great successor of Melchizedek's legacy in some ways. When we talk about the Melchizedek priesthood, it's about elevating ourselves through Jesus Christ, that we can become better, we can overcome. How has your life been elevated through Jesus Christ? Randy. I feel like uh, in so many ways I've been blessed and my family's been blessed and uh, I've been able to serve other people. It's given me an opportunity to serve in the temple and bless my family with, with the temple ordinances. It kept me away from a lot of other things that could have taken me in, in the wrong directions. And uh, it's, it's been a love of my life. You know, I, I appreciate what Randy has been saying about doing those things. What are some of your thoughts on how we use the priesthood in the modern church to help guide us and point us and direct us to Jesus Christ? All Latter-day Saints, all members of the church, anyone who enters into this covenant path has access to both priesthoods through the temple ceremonies, through the temple ordinances and covenants, because according to what the epistle to the Hebrews lays out, priesthood is for everyone and Christ transforms the Levitical set of priesthood ordinances into something that can be accessible to everyone. It talks about in chapter 11, how Christ is the veil of the temple. And when Christ passed away, he opened up that veil and allowed everyone to enter through. So through the Melchizedek and the Aaronic priesthoods, but when we're talking about the temple, it's mostly the Melchizedek priesthood. All Latter-day Saints can access the glories of Christ, all Latter-day Saints can come to know God, that key of the knowledge of God in new ways. And all Latter-day Saints can officiate with the power and authority of the priesthood. And I, 
It's a really beautiful thing. And I know when I was growing up, whenever we talked about priesthood, I always thought about it in terms of, yeah, it's something that the men hold mm -hmm. and officiate. And I never really understood how it all worked because there are all these offices until I attended the temple. And all of a sudden I got this grander vision of how, oh, the gospel isn't just about officiating in certain ordinances or uh, trying to look to Christ as a priest, though that's all part of it. It's about becoming a priest, becoming a queen, becoming something greater than myself. In the Doctrine and Covenants, it talks about how the Melchizedek priesthood is the, um, the key of the knowledge of God, and through the ordinances thereof, the power of godliness is made manifest. And in my mind, when I went to the temple, I just kind of all opened up like, wow, the power of godliness is within my grasp as a woman. And it really just brought into perspective how all of us have access to Christ, the gospel, and eventually entering into God's presence at the end of our lives. And Jasmine, I love how, as you're saying that, I, I really do believe that even today, a lot, you know, maybe felt a lot of people, uh, especially women, probably feel the same way you did as far as understanding priesthood. And, uh, and so I'm so grateful for modern revelation. Uh, President Nelson uh, has a great quote that goes along just with what you're saying as far as understanding the priesthood. He said, the heavens are just as open to women who are endowed with God's power flowing from their priesthood covenants as they are to men who bear the priesthood. I pray that truth will register upon each of your hearts because I believe it will change your life. Sisters, you have the right to draw liberally upon the Savior's power to help your family and others you love. And the reality is the priesthood is here to bless all of God's children. And sometimes I think it's helpful to kind of come back to the basic definitions. Priesthood is two parts, priesthood. And well, whenever you have a hood, you have a brotherhood or a sisterhood, it's a collection of those things. So a priesthood is a collection of priests. It's an order of priests. And when we think of the word priest, sometimes we think of that specific office in the Aaronic priesthood. But in a generic term, a priest is anyone who operates with that power and authority of God. And for the Old Testament Israelites, that looked more like Levitical forms of sacrifice. And those who were the sons of Aaron, those who were from the tribe of Levi, served as an order of priests. They were the priesthood. Uh, but then the epistle to the Hebrews kind of addresses the idea that with Christ, everyone can become a priest and a king, a queen and a priestess unto God. And Latter-day Saints really take that and develop that further with our idea of the temple and priesthood, that everyone has the potential to become a priest or priestess unto God. Therefore, everyone can be part of this priesthood. So on that, just uh, pull in Latter-day Saint history, you know, Joseph Smith told, and you can read this in the church website and the history of the Nauvoo Relief Society minutes, Joseph Smith told the Relief Society that he would organize the women in the order of the priesthood. Mm. So, um, and the early kind of, um, the first people to be endowed um, to temple ordinances called themselves the priesthood, the men and the women. So in this exact same sense of the group of people who were um, acting as priests and priestesses. Well, thank you both for increasing my knowledge and understanding of the priesthood. This has been fascinating, and I look forward to continuing our discussion within these chapters. And for those of you at home, how has your life been drawn closer to Christ through the Melchizedek priesthood? Please share your thoughts with us on Facebook. To me, the purpose of an ordinance is it's an active role that you play. You make a covenant, and then you do action. 
So you're actually moving your body and doing something to help you remember the covenant that you've made. The purpose of an ordinance in my mind is for us to make covenants with God. In a basic sense, ordinance is a law or a commandment. And when we make a covenant with God, we are agreeing to certain commandments or promises, and that's accompanied with some sort of ceremony or ritual. And so when we combine that all together, ordinances are there to connect us to God, to forge a covenantal relationship that we wouldn't have had otherwise. I think ordinances are important because they are a good reminder of the covenants that I've made, um, and the symbolic nature behind it I think is very meaningful. Our ordinances connect us to the Savior and then to Heavenly Father. And isn't that just so awesome that the Savior can't be here in person, but we have these ordinances for Him to say, this is how I'd like you to do it. This is how we did it in ancient times, and here's how I'd like you to do it now. And it's such a personal path. And I think that's so exciting. It's so personal that we're able to have this connection with Christ and with our Heavenly Father. So the second topic we're going to discuss today is ancient and modern ordinances point to Jesus Christ. And I'd like to kind of start talking about ancient ordinances. Do you mind kind of walking us through some of these and what the purpose of them was? Sure. In ancient Israel, they followed the law of Moses. And the law of Moses had 613 commandments, but they really boil down to the main 10 and everything else kind of just branches out from there, the 10 commandments. But with this came an order of priesthood, this idea that you needed to have animal sacrifice to, uh, not necessarily to forgive sins, but this idea that sacrifice was necessary in order to reconcile you back to God, that whenever you sinned or trespassed, it created distance between you and the God of Israel, and it created a distance between you and holiness. And so offering that sacrifice was a way to close the gap, to come into communion with God again. And so those were the main ordinances, you might say. And then when Christ comes along in the New Testament, he introduces a a new way. He all of a sudden says, these ordinances are good. These are important. However, I am the new way. I supersede the law. I um, am developing a new temple theology. I open the way for everyone to have access to these ordinances. Whereas in the Old Testament, Only the sons of Levi had access to participating directly in these priesthood ordinances. And the rest of Israel kind of had to watch on the sidelines. But with Christ, everyone has access to priesthood ordinances. Everyone has access to the temple, at least in a Latter-day Saint perspective. So Jasmine, I like how you talked about, you know, there were Old Testament ordinances. Christ introduced some ordinances in the New Testament. We had a question coming from one of our viewers uh, about this kind of evolution of ordinances. So let's watch and then we can discuss it. Hello, my name is Gracie. I'm from Congo. We know that both ancient and modern ordinances point to Jesus Christ. So my question is, how can we use New Testament to better understand modern ordinances today? That's a good question. How can we use some of the New Testament ordinances or just teachings to better understand the ordinances we perform today? Well, Jasmine pointed out in an earlier conversation that we were having that in Hebrews, you can see this wrestle, like a theological wrestle and a lot of theological work. You can hear like the jackhammers and like the pounding hammers and the screws and all that stuff going going in to kind of build this new theology. 
that's based on um, these treasured scriptures of the Old Testament, but then also integrating um, what Christ has revealed. In a similar manner, in the scriptures of the Restoration, we, especially Doctrine and Covenants, you can see those kinds of constructions going on. What we're trying to do in our ordinances and our doctrines and teachings and our practices is to kind of create a link between us and, and these existing scriptures. And Joseph Smith was really interesting in that he kind of embraced the Old Testament and the New Testament and in some ways kind of collapsed them all together. Um, for example, you know, the temple. You know, Christians at that time in antebellum America in the 19th century didn't um, aspire to kind of build Israelite temples, right? So it shows me that understanding ordinances and even developing the ordinances themselves, again, is always a process. There's like a, there's human fingerprints, as um, uh, Latter-day Saint theologian Derek Knox says, there's, there's human fingerprints and um, they interact with these, with these things, which totally makes sense, right? Because um, God, like that's what the scriptures are. They're records of how people have had a relationship with God. So in addition, the New Testament is the origin for some of our uh, more basic ordinances, mm -hmm. baptism, the sacrament. Uh, we get our conception of baptism from Jesus Christ being baptized. He fulfilling all righteousness. He's buried in the water. He receives a manifestation of a dove as far as the Holy Spirit. And so then we take that and say, okay, let's do that too, as a way to begin our journey. For Jesus Christ, it was the beginning of his call as the Messiah. And when we are baptized today, it's kind of our mini prophetic call that once we enter the waters of baptism, it's our chance to then become part of this story, to be partakers of disciples of Jesus Christ. And then again with the sacrament, it's at the Last Supper where Jesus essentially institutes this ordinance and tells the disciples to do this in the future. And so we take part in that legacy to eat his flesh and drink his blood in the form of bread and water. In Hebrews, we see this kind of careful discussion of sacrifice and making analogies to Christ as the thing that is the body that is sacrificed with really careful backing up from the Old Testament because this was such a difficult concept. Mm -hmm. So for example, in um, Hebrews chapter nine, verse 12, so it's, it's kind of comparing Christ to the sacrifices being made in ancient Israel. Uh, so I'll back up to 11. When Christ came as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy place, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls with the sprinkling of the ashes of a heifer sanctifies those who have been defiled so that their flesh is purified, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to worship the living God? So it's saying, you know, these ancient sacrifices, you know, we've always seen these as okay. And Christ is just like that. Also in chapter nine, verse 25, nor was it to offer himself Christ again and again as the high priest enters the holy place year after year with blood that is not his own. For then he would have had to suffer again and again since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once and for all at the end of the age to remove sin by the sacrifice of himself. So uh, always this kind of emphasize on Christ is offering himself as the body that's sacrificed. So why is it that we're asked to perform these ordinances? Why can't we just internally say, yeah, I believe I'll follow Jesus. What is the... the the thought behind uh, this requirement that we need to perform and even in modern day um, 
and modern Greek practices these specific ordinances such as baptism and partaking in the sacrament? Well, I believe that part of the power of ordinances is really in the covenant making. Maybe we should even flip it around that, you know, why do we need covenants? And uh, because covenants create a relationship with God. It forges a stronger connection than we may have had before because covenants consist of promises that we make and also they're accompanied by a ceremony. They create a different level of sacredness when we take them seriously and we add those ritual symbolic layers, when we add those commitment layers. But obviously more importantly, we believe that there's also authority coming from God, that the priesthood power authorizes certain commitments that we really are making to help us change and become better people. Just to add to that fantastic response, I think from a kind of pedagogical point of view, when we have these rituals involving our bodies, it helps us remember. There's so, something about the physicality of doing something, being immersed in cold water. Or physically the, taking something. Right, there's something about the body that remembers. So with that in mind, how do some of our modern ordinances point us or help us remember Jesus Christ? Dan. When I partake of the sacrament every Sunday, I, I think very seriously, you know, like you were talking about, uh, what the Savior means to me, what He's done for me. When we came to down, down to the earth, we were gonna make mistakes, and He's the one that's made it so if we repent, that we can wash ourselves again, you know, and, and uh, be able to live with our Heavenly Father. So Dan, why is it you think that we're asked to partake of the sacrament on a weekly basis? That's a very significant time, uh, you know, at the end of the week, after a week of work and then trying to make themselves better, uh, we're, we're asked to strive to, to be better. The Savior says that He wants us to be perfect as the Father is. And uh, how are we gonna do that? We're not gonna do that just one day or two days. We're gonna eventually get better and better as we learn to make and improve and learn to, to make our lives better. And that's how we improve. You know, and we talked about that in the earlier segment with how the priesthood is there to elevate us to be more like Christ. And now we have ordinances. What kind of connections can we make with the priesthood that is given to us uh, through Jesus Christ and these ordinances that we're asked to participate in collectively trying to get us to become more like Him? Well, I think ultimately all of these ordinances, they all point to Jesus Christ and they all help us to become more like him. When we talk about you know, symbolism in baptism, when you're dunking yourself in the water, early Christian commentators would talk about how it's a burial of your old self and you're resurrecting to your new life, just as Jesus Christ was buried in the grave for three days and resurrected to new life. Um, sometimes we talk about it as a rebirth, like in uh, John chapter three, when it talks about being born again. And so in different ways, we can see Christ's fingerprints all over these ordinances. Obviously the sacrament is a very tangible representation of his body and his blood. In the temple, we have sacred ordinances that also point us to Jesus Christ, because as we talked about, uh, the epistle to Hebrews talks about how the veil of the temple is Christ's flesh. And he's 
specifically talking about the ancient tabernacle, but we can also apply it to the temple today that we access the Father through the Son. One of the purposes of the temple endowment is to grant us with priesthood power, authority, and to help us enter back into the presence of our Heavenly Father. And we can only do that through Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And there are symbols in the temple and there are practices in the temple that all reflect some of these ideas of trying to become like Christ, trying to receive Christ's image in our hands, on our clothing, in our faces, in our countenances, in our names, in everything we do, so that by the time we are trying to approach Heavenly Father, we resemble Him in every aspect. I really love that answer because I love the sacred temple rites that help us to kind of think about what it means to be here on the earth. The cosmos was created by God, by our Heavenly Father and our Heavenly Mother. We know that we can kind of return back to them and be as they are. And it seems to me that the big missing piece in how do we become as our heavenly parents are is can we love as they do? And like, like for me, the obvious answer is like, no way, <laughs> so far away. Um, but our, our temple covenants can help us with that. So for example, in Mosiah chapter 18, the famous um, baptismal covenant, which we kind of as Latter-day Saints um, is unique to our tradition where we talk about what it means to enter the fold of God and to become um, his people in verse eight, to bear one another's burdens that they may be light, willing to mourn with those that mourn and comfort those that stand in need of comfort. I mean, to me, that shows a kind of horizontal dimension to our baptismal covenants, as well as a vertical dimension, not just to, to God, to Christ, um, but also to our fellow beings, not just Latter-day Saints, but our fellow beings. And that idea that it's like a covenant that holds me to people that I find hard to love, who find me probably extremely hard to love, um, that like gives me a sense of power because, you know, even though I'm just so far away, it's like there's like this strong thing that kind of holds me in relationship with people and I really appreciate that. I love the second part of that scripture where it talks about, in addition to mourn with those that mourn and comfort those that stand in need of comfort, to stand as a witness of Jesus Christ at all times and all things and all places. And it kind of is the dichotomy between the two great commandments that first thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, might, mind, and strength. And second is like unto it to love thy neighbor as thyself. And really all of our temple covenants kind of can boil down to those two. Are we putting God first in our lives? Is he the most important thing? And it kind of progressively gets us to, and how are we treating our neighbor? How are we treating our community? How are we treating our consecrated Zion here? And so, like you said, it's a horizontal relationship. It's a vertical relationship. And in an ideal world, it's all binding us together to Christ in this beautiful network of heaven. Because I think sometimes, you know, if we're not careful, we can get too caught up in performing the physical part of the ordinance where we're missing the, the internalization of it and what it really means, what we're really committing to as we perform these ordinances. So it doesn't just become a, okay, I took a sacrament, I'm good. I just wanna thank you both for, for sharing with us your insights and your knowledge on this, our second topic about ordinances and how they point us to Jesus Christ. And for the audience, thank you as well for uh, being here and for participating with us today. And for those of you at home, we still have much to cover from Hebrews with Melissa and Jasmine. Stick around for footnotes. I believe that the Spirit communicates with me the best when I've been given a task to think about something or to prepare for something. And I go into a meditative state and 
thinking about what is about to happen or be performed, um, the Spirit reaches me then and tells me what I should do to a degree, or at least how I should think about things. Mostly the Spirit communicates with me. I'll usually get cold chills and the hair stands up on my arms, but whenever I'm sharing something that's very meaningful to me, um, tears, it's the tears, the emotion comes, and I just know when that comes, I know that the Holy Ghost is testifying to me that what I've witnessed is true. And I'm so grateful to have felt that today. Welcome to Come Follow Up Footnotes. We've dismissed our studio audience and are looking forward to building upon our previous discussions about the priesthood and ordinances with Melissa and Jasmine. Okay, so uh, we have so much to talk about. We're talking about the book of Hebrews. I think a lot of times when we, we talk about faith, it's, I had the faith to do this amazing feat and everything worked out and it was wonderful. But sometimes it takes a lot of faith to get out of bed in the morning or to... You know, to, to go to church when, when, when things are really, really rough or to pay your tithing when you're really falling on hard times. So the faith to kind of do some of those smaller things that don't get recognized, you know, is, is kind of coupled into, you know, a, a different aspect of how we exercise faith. Yeah, I mean, in chapter 10, verse 32 to 35, the author of Hebrews says, but recall those earlier days when after you had been enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to abuse and persecution, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion for those who were in prison, and you cheerfully accepted the plundering of your possessions, knowing that you yourselves possess something better and more lasting. Do not therefore abandon that confidence of yours. It brings a great reward. So this confidence, this faith that even though things are hard, it's going to be okay. And we didn't even touch on chapter 11, which, which is this very, um, I guess, key chapter about faith. You wanna start us off, Jasmine? Sure, so this chapter is all about faith, as you mentioned, and it starts out in verse one with, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. This is a super familiar scripture to a lot of people. It's cherry picked a lot. It's used in Sunday school lessons, put on felt boards, but we usually don't get to dive into the context of what's going on here. And it helps us define what faith is, uh, but it kind of follows this very logical sequence in the epistle to the Hebrews since the author here is trying to set up Jesus Christ as this high priest. So he goes into all these details about, well, what is priesthood? And how does Jesus Christ fit in the category of priest since he's not from the tribe of Levi? And so he uses Melchizedek as this example of having a different order of priesthood. And so then when we get to chapter 11, it's almost as if the author is trying to tell us that you know, faith is what fuels the priesthood. Faith is what gives life to this authority that people are given in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in ancient Israel. Um, priesthood being, you know, authority and power that we're given, but faith is the fuel. It is this willpower, this belief, this trusting God that is able to help us accomplish these great things. And he gives several examples all through the Old Testament of Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham of all these people who did great things because of faith. Therefore, they also did it, you know, through God's power, which we would talk about as priesthood. 
just to supplement what you said, Jasmine, sometimes some of these examples are examples of times when um, people exercised faith and not necessarily to kind of achieve something new or win, but to kind of also deal with something really hard or to give something up even. So for example, it says um, 24, by faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to share ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Um, So what's, I love what you're saying about about this kind of focus on Christ. Do you think it's also um, legit to say that in some way, this seems like the ultimate confidence, right? Okay. Even when things are going poorly, like poorly in your life, you still are confident that God is with you and that your position is okay. Because the opposite, the flip side of that is like a prosperity gospel approach, right? Okay. Where you're like, if I have faith, I will win at everything yeah. and nothing bad will ever happen to me. But as soon as something bad happens to you, mm-hmm. then your faith crumbles. So, um, so this to me seems like the, the ultimate confidence to be able to deal with the hard stuff. And you could even argue that, I mean, faith really isn't faith unless it is tested. I mean, that's where you're developing that faith. That's where you're forging the faith is when it is very difficult, not when things are easy. I mean, are you really developing faith when you're standing at the tree of life? Or is that faith really developing when you're wandering through the dark and dreary mm-hmm. mists and you're trying to keep onto that iron rod? And I think what comes into play is uh, when you go to the definition of faith in Greek, it's pistis, and uh, in that ancient conception, it has a lot to do with loyalty, like faithfulness to something, like you're faithful to a spouse. And so when we think about faith in that lens, when things are really hard, it's not about, you know, having this willpower to do great things. It's being loyal to what you know is true, being like loyal and convicted, even though things are hard. Mm -hmm. Having the faith to get out of bed is just that loyalty to knowing that Things might get better later on, but it's hard right now. So my little brother, Ben, is a teacher in Colorado, and he, he was participating in a, like a you know, graduate school kind of you know, certificate in um, learning about compassion and mindfulness in education. And he got to be on a Zoom call with the Dalai Lama, oh, wow. <laughs> and he got to ask the Dalai Lama a question. So I, I watched this, and, and it changed how I thought about um, what it means to follow Christ. So... He asked the Dalai Lama, um, he said, you know, sometimes in my class when I'm teaching my kids, it's easy to have compassion when the kids are well behaved. Mm -hmm. But when the kids are not well behaved, I'm really frustrated, then it's really hard to have compassion. And the Dalai Lama said, you don't have compassion lying in the sun or um, sitting on the beach. You have compassion when you're frustrated, when people are hating you. Mm-hmm. No sickness, no medicine. So that made me think, oh my gosh, you know, Jesus who told us to love our neighbors, to pray for those who despitefully used us and persecuted us. Are you saying that I, I'm not exercising Christ-like love unless it's like those people who are hating me or persecuting me or being super, super, super annoying? It's easy to love people who, like, it's no problem to love people in that way when people are saying, oh, Mm -hmm. you're so wonderful, (laughs) you're so great, everything is wonderful, right? Right. But if you don't have compassion until, like, you've got that tension, Mm -hmm. then maybe the whole point of church or or the whole point of these communities 
where we're kind of bound together and we have to be with each other is to have those interactions. So from that point of view, those interactions that are the most painful, the most testing, the most frustrating, are like the most sacred, the most Christful, and the most valuable, like in terms of how do we become like God. And it really does tie into this idea of faith being a sense of loyalty, because if we really are a covenant community, we also need to have faith in each other. We need to be loyal to each other as members, as disciples of this covenant community. It's the idea that we've got horizontal relationships and vertical ones. We must first be loyal to God, but the second great commandment is like unto it, love thy neighbor as thyself. And so if we really are exhibiting faith, we have faith in God, but we extend faith, trust, loyalty mm -hmm. to each other, even in those moments of tension and dissonance. So in chapter 11, we have a lot of examples of, of faith, of, of you know, people from the Bible, both men and women. Do you all have a favorite story or an example from the scriptures, whether it's mentioned here in chapter 11 or not, that kind of adds or strengthens your, your, your testimony on, on faith or that you just really appreciate that helps you understand faith a little more? Well, one that I was thinking of is uh, a few weeks ago, I was studying in 1 Samuel and you've got the story of Hannah mm -hmm. who uh, has faith that God is going to give her a child. She feels like she is loved by her husband, but she feels like she is unfulfilled because she doesn't have children. And so she makes a covenant with the Lord that if you give me a child, I will have him serve in the temple. And to me, I find that just really touching, very inspiring, that it's a, such a personal relationship she had with God that she personally asked him and, and was able to get that blessing. But I also love what Elder Bednar, I think, talked about years ago, that sometimes when we have faith, we need to also have faith not to be healed. Mm -hmm. But if not, yeah. let me still you know, extend trust. And so that, that's always a story that's resonated with me that you know, Hannah did get her fulfillment of her desire. And it's, it's beautiful to see her faith and she didn't renege on her covenant once that came. She did give him to the Lord, but also her sincerity shows through that even if not, we still need to push forward. Um, I like the story of Hagar. You know, she had a difficult life from the very beginning. In the first place, she was enslaved um, by Abraham and Sarah, actually. Um, in the second place, so, so, so she was like a super marginalized person. She had no power. She had no position. Um, and so then, and so Sarah could just say, you know, cut her loose and, and she, um, and Abraham took her out into the wilderness. Um, so she felt totally abandoned by her family and she thought her son was going to die and she cried and God came to her and gave her the faith to kind of keep on looking around, to keep trying to find something, to keep trying to live. She finds this water and they're able to survive. And I think um, she's just like an example of how you don't have to be in an ideal situation to have God be part of your life. You don't have to be in an ideal situation for God to reveal themselves to you. So um, I think this is actually one of the first places in the, in the Genesis narrative where God's messenger speaks to someone who's enslaved, where God directly intervenes in the life of someone who's enslaved. So that's, you know, pretty radical. You know, God isn't just a God of the people who are the elites or the people who have all the privilege. God spoke to her and gave her what she needed. God hears all people from the elites to the marginalized, and that's reflected in her son's Ishmael's name, which is related to the Hebrew meaning heard of God, that God heard my prayer. You know, something, uh, a common theme throughout the writings of, of Paul, and whether or not he is the author of the book of Hebrews, we see this theme continue of of being centered on Christ. Our faith is centered 
on, on the hope in Jesus Christ. Uh, but there's something that I'm, I'm curious about. I'd love to get your thoughts on. Um, in verses 8 and 9 of chapter 13, he says, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever, be not carried away about with divers and strange doctrines. And I think that as we talk about exercising faith in Jesus Christ, we have to, there's this balance that we have to establish um, of what Christ is really teaching and you know, the, some of these strange doctrines that can creep in, um, that if we're not careful, can, can pull us away. The Book of Mormon in 2 Nephi 31 talks about the doctrine of Christ, you know, and some of those, as we talked about earlier, those ordinances uh, of the gospel, faith, repentance, baptism. What are some of your thoughts on how exercising faith can keep us in line with the true doctrine of Christ as opposed to some of these strange doctrines? Well, sometimes we take individual scriptures out of context and we rest them and we use them to justify certain things. And it's like when you draw a point on a piece of paper and you can draw a line through that and that line can face any direction and have any number of angles. And it can be very easy to get disoriented if you only have one dot. But the minute you put a second dot on that piece of paper, you can connect those lines and now you are oriented straight. And so. In some ways, I think we need to ground ourselves in multiple points of what do the scriptures say? What mm -hmm. does the doctrine say? What have prophets and apostles consistently said over time to anchor us in what is the true doctrine of Christ? It's the combination, the constellation of all of these points that creates our true doctrine. And if we're only focusing on one or two points that we pull out of context, that's when we can get caught up in diverse and strange doctrines. Uh, well, we've... This has been really fun so far. What other things from the book of Hebrews and these chapters, uh, anything that you wanna talk about or, or anywhere you wanna go with these? I really like Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 22. Mm -hmm. It says, having therefore brethren boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil that is to say his flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. First of all, I really love the language. It's got rich descriptors, but more importantly, I love how it talks about the boldness and how we can triumphantly enter into the metaphorical holy of holies to take advantage of Christ's grace. In the Old Testament, there was a certain sense of timidness around approaching God because uh, the Israelite high priest could only enter into the Holy of Holies once a year on the Day of Atonement. And there was you know, lore about what would happen if you were unworthy to enter, would you get smitten by God? And yet here we have the opposite of that. Jesus Christ is the veil of the tabernacle, his flesh. He is the mediator that allows us entrance into God's presence. And because of his sacrifice, that veil is opened and we are allowed to triumphantly and with boldness enter in. And I just, it empowers me that feeling that I can enter without fear, that I can enter and bask in the love of God. So I'm just thinking about what you said about boldness and what it can mean to feel that boldness, like feel like you belong, like you're entitled to be there. It makes me think about um, that song, My Shepherd Will Supply My Need. And at the very end, it says, no, no more a stranger or a guest, but like a child at home. You know, sometimes when, when things are hard, um, maybe it's like okay to get super mad, right? And be like, ah, <laughs> this is so hard. Why, why haven't you fixed me? You know, because um, 
because in some ways there's like intimacy there as well. You know, like when you're, when you're real with God, maybe that's like a way of being, of being bold in a way that kind of shows that, that loyalty in, in a way, right? Letting because, your guard down. Yeah, you're close. You, yeah. Okay, to be real, because instead of just like being super circumspect, this idea of just kind of like, you know, walking into your parents' room and being like, <laughs> you know, I'm so frustrated, you know, as a parent, that kind of directness and intimacy is what I want, you know, and, and I'm so frustrated when my kids just kind of don't talk to me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're going through a hard time, but they don't, they don't open up. They're just there. So maybe, um, maybe that bolt, like, maybe it's okay. I'm saying mm-hmm. to like, to complain. Um, if you're like, if you feel like you're really complaining to your heavenly parents, you know? You know, I, I love how you said that. And I feel like in, in, those, in those moments of frustration when I'm just letting down my guard in prayer, I, I feel like those have been the times when I've really strengthened my, my relationship with my Father in heaven when I'm just talking. And sometimes it's pretty vocal and I'm frustrated and I'm just driving and I'm, you know, it's loud. And, you know, you could even say I'm borderline just yelling and screaming out my frustrations because that's what's natural. And maybe um, as you're saying, it, it was, it's, very, it's a very bold approach. And there's a specific time I'm thinking of where I'm driving and I was so frustrated. I was just yelling like, like why, why, you know, like it's, it's like you're screaming, why, am I have, why do I have to go through this? And at the same time, as I'm yelling at my frustrations, it clicks, like this is a real relationship. How do we get to that point to be so bold to strengthen those relationships? I mean, as you talked about, it's a relationship, there's intimacy there, there's belonging, this feeling of entitlement, if you will, that we, we belong in God's presence. And one of the ways, one of the goals that Heavenly Father has for us is that eventually we will become more like him, that when he shall appear, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. And we get to that point through the ordinances of the temple, I think in some ways, that the ordinances of the temple teach us covenants, they teach us information about where we came from, why we're here, where we're going, in an attempt to help us elevate ourselves. While we have moments of frustration, we have moments of real wrestle with the Lord that draw us closer to him, He also hopes that eventually we are going to progress. We're gonna try to do a little bit better. We're gonna try to be a little bit more Christ-like so that when we do reach the point where we're on the threshold of the veil, meeting our heavenly father, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. So, you know, as we, coming back to this common theme of Hebrews of connecting us with Christ, you know, being bold in that relationship. In chapter 12, uh, we get another side of that with, the talking of chastening and what happens there in chapter 12, verse six, for whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. Verse seven, if ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. And, I, and I, that, that part is interesting to me from the standpoint of a relationship between us and, and Heavenly Father, how should we look at the chastening that we sometimes receive as a stepping stone perhaps to building and strengthening that relationship? Well, I think of the scripture in the Doctrine of Covenants that says, uh, reproving the times with sharpness, but afterwards show an overabundance of love. And I think about times when my parents have 
stopped me from doing something that was going to harm myself or harm someone mm-hmm. else and say, no, don't do that or, you know, don't touch the stove, whatever it may be. And then afterwards, they, you know, sit me down and they explain once, you know, the crisis moment is over, let's sit down and talk about why, why that happened, why you might have hurt yourself, why you might have hurt someone else and why I'm doing this because I love you, because I want you to become a better person. I want you to be someone who can show love and care for someone instead of someone who causes harm. And so that's some of the things that I think about when I think of how we can turn chastening into a relationship that builds love and care for others. So uh, Jasmine, I would just love to, uh, to hear from you as you've been so great in being here and explaining and, and enlightening us. Can you just kind of tell us a little bit what started you on this path in your career? Oh, sure. Well, um, a lot of it I can attribute to my mother, maybe her chastisement. Maybe. <laughs> um, she was my seminary teacher for my growing up in high school. We did home study for several years, but then she was called as an early morning teacher for our ward. And so she was my seminary teacher all throughout. And I definitely had struggles with her and talking back and all of that. But at the end of the day, she is the one who really ignited my love for the scriptures mm. because she forced us to come up with questions for every single section of scripture we were learning. And that exercise of coming up with questions um, just triggered a curiosity I never knew I even had in the scriptures. So that led me to go uh, study at BYU to do some biblical studies, ancient Near Eastern studies. And then that led me to Book of Mormon Central, which is the organization I work for now. And it helps me to take scholarship and good research people have done and try to distill it for um, Latter-day Saints, for people just studying their scriptures and try to communicate it in a way that's a little bit more accessible. And that's what I'm really passionate about is trying to communicate and articulate some difficult concepts in the gospel to people studying their scriptures and to try to give it to them in a more accessible way. I love the gospel. I love the scriptures, especially the New Testament. It's a really a lot of fun. And so that's, that's why I do what I do. The glory of God is intelligence. And so the pursuit of intelligence and knowledge and more learning about the gospel just really excites me, motivates me. Well, your passion has definitely has shown today. And uh, I think I can speak for both of us that we've learned a lot from you and are super grateful for you being here. So thank you both for what you've done for us today uh, on this episode and for your contributions. And thank you at home for joining us for this discussion from Hebrews chapter 7 through 13. I encourage you to record and act upon any impressions that you've received. Lesson ready clips, artwork, and more is available online at byutv.org slash comefollowup. Please join us next week as we discuss faith, works, and patience from the book of James. Thanks for watching. Come Follow Up is a production of BYU Broadcasting.